The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Thursday, October 13th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a Supreme Court case involving Prince and Andy Warhol that could have huge implications on the future of art. Plus, a new book by Galileo just dropped, and a song sung by a hundred thousand people who didn't know they were singing together. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. There's been a lot of hubbub recently around the rights of artists in AI art generation. Like, how should an artist whose work is being culled by the AI be credited? Is there any sort of compensation they should get if the AI-generated art that partially uses some of this other artist's art is commercialized? And how do these artists even find out their art is being used? It's a hot topic right now, and frankly makes my head spin a bit. But while the Web3 folks tread that inevitably litigious path, there's a more traditional case that's made it all the way to the Supreme Court, even though the two most famous artists involved have long since passed away. The case centers on a series of 16 silkscreens that Andy Warhol produced of the musician Prince. They're not Warhol's most famous works, but you might recognize them. Or if you saw them all together, you'd probably guess that they were made by Warhol. But the reference image used for the silkscreens was not taken by Warhol. It was taken by a photographer named Lynn Goldsmith, and she never gave her permission for Warhol to use them. And how this case gets decided could have far-reaching implications for artists and free expression in the U.S., So here's roughly what happened, as NPR describes it. Goldsmith was hired by Newsweek to shoot some photos of Prince in 1981. She shot some candids at a concert and some portraits in her studio. Newsweek opted to run the candid concert photos, so Goldsmith kept the portraits in her personal files for possible publication or licensing in the future. And then, three years later, such a licensing opportunity arose. Vanity Fair had commissioned Andy Warhol to make an illustration of Prince for an article about the musician, and they specifically requested that Warhol use one of those portraits from Goldsmith as a reference photo for the illustration. They paid Goldsmith $400 to license the photo for just the one Vanity Fair issue. But after that, Warhol went on to create the full set of 16 silkscreens, all using that image as a reference, and all of which he copyrighted. Vanity Fair used one of them, and according to NPR, the set of 16 have since been sold and reproduced, creating millions of dollars in profits for the Andy Warhol Foundation, the nonprofit set up after the artist's death in 1987. 
Now, to be clear, there's no evidence that Warhol was aware of the one-time-use stipulations of the Goldsmith photograph, but in 2016, when Vanity Fair used one of these silkscreen images for their Prince obituary and paid the Andy Warhol Foundation $10,250 but did not pay or credit Goldsmith, she sued the foundation. The foundation has been trying for what is basically a fair use argument, saying that Warhol's rendering is transformative enough to not infringe on Goldsmith's copyrights. In addition to changing things like the color, angle, and crop, the foundation says the tone and meaning was changed from what Goldsmith described of the original photograph as vulnerable to what the foundation says of the silkscreen is iconic. Quoting NPR, As you might imagine, each side has its experts, and indeed, two lower courts disagreed on the matter. A federal district court judge found that the Warhol series is transformative because it conveys a different message from the original and thus is fair use under the Copyright Act. But a three-judge panel of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals disagreed, declaring that judges should not assume the role of art critic and seek to ascertain the meaning of the works at issue. End quote. Now, the Supreme Court could rule that the Warhol Foundation owes Goldsmith licensing fees and potentially other damages. Also entering the debates in this case is the point of the works. Goldsmith, as a photographer, primarily works in the commercial space, selling her photographs to magazines. And while in this particular instance, Warhol and later the Warhol Foundation was specifically working with a magazine as well, Warhol mostly worked in exhibitions. For example, Justice Neil Gorsuch pointed out that Warhol's Campbell Soup paintings were not a threat to Campbell's Soup the company because they were never intended to sell the soup, but to, quote, induce a reaction from a viewer in a museum or in other settings, end quote. It is such a heated subject, though, that apparently three dozen friend-of-the-court briefs have been filed, arguing both sides from parties including the Motion Picture Association of America and the Recording Industry Association of America. And it really is a tough subject. You know, more power in the hands of original artists is good, but getting more granular in this way could also limit the expression of other artists. It's like a lot of copyright issues, which seemed in their original intent to protect artists, but more and more protect major corporations or wealthy estates and prevent smaller artists from building on existing works in transformative ways, from film adaptations to fan fiction to AI creations. According to Artnet, Roman Martinez of the firm Latham Watkins, which is representing the Warhol Foundation, said that a ruling in favor of the foundation will, quote, help any emerging artist who wants to create new and innovative work that integrates pre-existing images, and that limiting the scope of fair use will chill the creation of new art by established and up-and-coming artists alike, end quote. The court is due to make a decision in the coming months, and whichever way it goes, it will definitely have major impacts on the art world, including current and upcoming cases of AI-generated art. As Art News summed it up, quote, Making deliberations in court on an artwork's purpose and character is a tricky business, end quote. So you might have heard back in August that a manuscript written by Galileo Galilei and housed at the University of Michigan's library for nearly a century was found to be fraudulent. 
Historian Nick Wilding, who has spotted Galileo hoaxes in the past, noted that the filigree of the paper meant that the paper itself could not have been around before the 18th century. Galileo lived from the mid-16th to mid-17th century. And Wilding's investigation further found that another Galileo manuscript at the Morgan Library here in New York City was also a fraud. Since August, additional details have emerged, including that the counterfeit documents had been made by an infamous forger in the early 20th century named Tobiah Nicotra, and that an additional document long suspected to have been written by Galileo under a pseudonym was indeed real. So we lost some documents, but found an additional authentic one. Medievalists.net and Ars Technica covered the story in detail, but between all the Italian names and the intricacies of authorship research, it's admittedly a bit tough to follow. Here's what I believe are the broad strokes. When those counterfeit documents were first authenticated back in the early 1900s, that was done so by comparing them to other alleged Galileo documents that it turns out were also fake. And one of those was a letter allegedly signed by Galileo, which has often been pointed to as the main piece of evidence that writings by someone named Alberto Mori was actually Galileo. But with that letter now shown to be fraudulent as well, does that mean that we no longer have any evidence that Mori was Galileo? Well, there are a few nods. Ars Technica points to contemporary peers and adversaries of Galileo's who alluded to Mori being a pseudonym and referring to Mori as someone who taught at the University of Padua, where Galileo was at the time a professor. There's even a student's copy of a text referring to Alberto Mori in which the student wrote beneath the name Galileo Galilei. But without that letter, some of the strongest evidence was gone, so historian Matteo Koshi went looking through an archive of Galileo's largely unpublished handwritten notes for any other trace of evidence. One of the most promising and juiciest bits of evidence that Koshi found is a list Galileo made of places where Del Colombe speaks of me with contempt, Del Colombe being the main intellectual adversary of Galileo's at the time, and the places referred to specific passages in Del Colombe's published works. But here's the kicker. Most of those citations make absolutely no reference to Galileo. They do, however, refer to Alberto Mori. So Galileo was keeping the receipts for every dis made his and his pseudonym's way, and we again have evidence that Galileo was the author of Considerazioni Astronomiche. Now, Galileo used pseudonyms for a number of reasons over the years. Some of his ideas were a bit controversial, and he wanted to avoid the ire of either the Pope or the Republic of Venice, especially when he was trying to seek additional patronage beyond the borders of the Republic to enhance his income. Now, a little bit on the book itself from Medievalists.net, quote, among the most interesting arguments in this work can be listed, for instance, the hypothesis of existence of mountains on the surface of the moon from a purely perspectivist point of view, the idea that physical causes are the actual reasons for explaining the regularity of celestial motions that apparently follow non-uniform paths, and the criticism of those who reject astrology without having the necessary astronomical knowledge to properly do so. 
Therefore, Considerazioni Astronomiche di Alberto Mori is written by an unusual yet recognizable Galileo during a transition phase in which he was at once looking for new patronage and trying to confute the most retrograde Aristotelian tenets. Just a few years before his discoveries with the telescope would lead him to move to Florence and then make him famous all over the world. End quote. As Wilding, who first discovered the forgeries at the University of Michigan and the Morgan Library, said, quote, This is an excellent example of how patient and intelligent archival research can restore some of the damage inflicted by forgers. Dr. Koshi has shown us that a combination of skepticism and skill will lead us to historical truth. End quote. And speaking of posthumous works, Playbill has just confirmed that the upcoming Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, will feature posthumous cameos from both Angela Lansbury and Stephen Sondheim. Now, unlike digitally created doubles used by other franchises, and of which I've spoken about a few times on this show, Lansbury and Sondheim both shot their parts for the film before they passed away. Shooting apparently occurred between June and September of last year. Sondheim passed away in November, and Lansbury, of course, passed away just this week. No word yet on what sort of roles they will play, but it will definitely be a bittersweet watch. Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, will hit Netflix on December 23rd, but recently announced it will have a one-week international theatrical run the week of Thanksgiving, November 23rd to 29th. And this is apparently a landmark deal, the first time Netflix has gotten all three of the big chains, AMC, Regal, and Cinemark, on board for a theatrical release. That, plus the unique release schedule, one week in theaters and then a month of blackout before going on Netflix, has film execs talking about this potentially being a changing tide for tension between streaming and theaters, if it works out. Regardless of when or how I end up seeing it, I am pretty stoked for this one. The first Knives Out was impeccable, and if you haven't seen it before, I highly recommend it. So this is a really cool and innovative project. English singer-songwriter Jacob Collier yesterday posted a video of more than 100,000 of his fans singing an a cappella version of Elvis Presley's Can't Help Falling in Love. Only none of those fans knew they had done so until the video was posted. Over the course of his North American tour, at each stop, at some point during the show, Collier would get the whole audience to sing a single word, harmonized with different notes assigned to different parts of the audience. He additionally had a QR code for people to easily film themselves singing and then send the footage to him. What resulted was a beautiful choral rendition of the song. I'll play a sample for you here. It really is worth watching the video if you can, though. Link in the show notes. It shows Collier directing the audience in each city, as well as a big collage of the selfie videos of each of the audience members singing. 
Now, I'm not going to lie, I hadn't heard of Collier before today, but I looked into him just briefly, and it turns out he got his start doing pretty innovative creative covers like this and other original songs that went viral on YouTube, and then that led to signing with Quincy Jones's management company and a ton of other creative projects, some of which have won him multiple Grammy Awards, and another which was in partnership with MIT's Media Lab, creating a one-man audiovisual live performance vehicle. Super creative and talented dude. I am definitely going to be digging into his work more. And you know, I also can't help thinking, where might this Elvis cover stand in terms of copyright after the Supreme Court weighs in on the Warhol case? It's entirely possible that Collier, a Grammy award-winning musician with the connections and budget to go with it, got permission from the Elvis estate to cover the song. But there are plenty of smaller artists just getting their start who don't have the connections, know-how, or money to do something like that when they want to cover a song. Collier used to be one of them. You know, I doubt that some of his earliest viral videos that put him on the path to creating these amazing works of art at a much larger scale sought permission for the covers he posted. Again, it's tough, you know, I want artists to be protected, but I guess not at the expense of other artists especially when it becomes a case of a new, smaller artist versus in a state or somewhere that doesn't even have any artists left in it. Sticky business, for sure. So yesterday I told you all about Clamonays, Cards Against Humanity's recent endeavor into clam-flavored mayonnaise. And I mentioned that jars of Clamonays had already sold out, but I am happy to report that more jars will be available soon online and in Target stores, the exclusive brick-and-mortar provider of Clamonays. I got this info from a Cards Against Humanity rep who reached out to me following yesterday's episode, and she asked adds that they don't have an exact timeline yet, but if you missed out earlier this week, definitely keep an eye on their social media for updates. But that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.